This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest and really quite fascinating. His name is John Litt. He is founder and chief investment officer of a firm that invests in public REITs called Landon Buildings. And there aren't a lot of companies that have this sort of unique ability to express their views on real estate and interest rates and the state of the economy and where people are living, working, shopping, etc., by purchasing companies and REITs in the public space. It's really kind of unique and interesting. We see a lot of private equity making investments into either individual houses or multifamily or whatever. But to see a public company to specifically look to identify underpriced REITs because of their underlying assets being undervalued, kind of interesting, quite fascinating. If you are at all interested in real estate or REITs or anything related to the topics, you're going to find this to be a very interesting conversation. So with no further ado, my conversation with John Litt. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is John Litt. He is the founder and chief investment officer of Land and Buildings. Institutional investor ranked him as the number one real estate analyst for eight years running. He comes to us with a background undergraduate at Columbia. He got his MBA from NYU Stern. John Litt, welcome to Masters in Business. Thank you, Barry. So, like so many uh, in Wall Street, you began your career as an analyst, but you started in 1987. What was that like? So I always wanted to be in real estate. And uh, first, I thought I was going to be an architect. And uh, along the way, I realized uh, I was probably better on the investor side. 1987, if you remember, there was a minor stock market crash uh, on uh, October 18th, down about 22%. And I always wanted to be in real estate. I got into it. I worked for a private buyer syndicator of real estate when I started my career. And we went right into the uh, recession of the early 1990s. And the uh, and what I learned very quickly uh, was that as a private sponsor of real estate transactions, we always made money, uh, whether our investors made money or not. Uh, and we went from buying shopping centers to doing workouts and bankruptcies. And around that time, in the early 1990s, the legislation that governed the REITs was changed. And it allowed REITs to be internally managed and internally advised. Um, And so there was a real alignment of interest uh, in the public market uh, where management's interests were aligned with that of shareholders. And I looked at my position on the private side uh, where there clearly was not an alignment when I was a young analyst at the time on the acquisitions team. And I looked at the REITs uh, in 1992, and I said, that's a better mousetrap. That's a better mousetrap as an investor to make money in real estate. Uh, and I uh, switched and went to work for one of the leading buyers of REITs at the time. The industry was all of $15 billion. And uh, I went to work for them. Uh, and it ended up being that that change in the legislation in the early 1990s opened the doors to today uh, with a $1 trillion industry uh, of public companies. Uh, and I got a great front row seat uh, right uh, in 92 as the IPO machine started in earnest. So how significant were the, I don't know if you were, you can recall the era in the 1980s when there were all these huge tax incentives to use real estate as a write-off. When did that change? And the move towards public REITs, was that related to taxes? The, everyone always had a headache with the K-1 filings. How has the legal structure made it easier to be a public investor in real estate? Right. So now I'm going to really date myself. So Ronald Reagan was president, uh, and he put through him a Tax Reform Act, uh, eliminating many of the benefits of owning real estate in a private structure uh, through the, as you mentioned, through the tax benefits. 
And so you went into a bit of a real estate depression because the valuations of real estate and the leverage on real estate no longer made sense. And in part, the firm uh, that I started my career at uh, was uh, impacted uh, by that. They were still able to continue to raise money and invest. uh, But that was a real sea change. Uh, And of course, we then went into uh, the recession in the early early 90s, which was uh, quite painful real estate. I would say we had the recession. I recall calling uh, the early 90s a depression uh, for real estate. And it took a long time to recover. And frankly, many companies that went public really didn't have a choice. It was go broke or go public. And it coincided with the time when this legislation was changed. And that really opened up the doors uh, to what I believe is a much better mousetrap for investing in real estate. Uh, by investing in the public REITs. I have a vivid recollection of graduating grad school in 89, and all my colleagues who ran out and bought condos or co-ops in New York City that year, it took them almost a decade to get back to break-even. That real estate depression you, you reference was very, very significant in the 90s, and it was almost like the boom in the early 2000s was making up for lost time. How do you look at that era of the 90s to the 2000s? How significant was that prior lost decade? You know, it's interesting. And, you know, if you read the papers today about how long is it going to take us to recover from the corona, COVID-19, how long it takes us to get the jobs back, et cetera. You know, once you have the reset, uh, which we've now had with the 30 million people unemployed or with the bottom in real estate, which was probably 91, 92, um, you then had growth. Uh, and you then looked at not when do we get back to peak, but what's it going to look like in the next 12 months, 24 months, 36 months. And that's really what we were focused on uh, at the time. Supply got largely shut off, and you were able to see the economy slowly coming out of the recession uh, and demand building. And I remember you know, the hotel business, which was fairly decimated during that period, was the, really the first to come back as people got back out on the road uh, and we started to see uh, healthy increases in occupancies and, and, and rents or uh, nightly rates. And it's gradually built over the balance of the decade, not without its bumps, but we saw steady growth. And in fact, I mean, you look back the 30 years, there's been steady growth with a few major interruptions, but there's been pretty steady growth in demand for real estate. Quite fascinating. So, John, you had a really fascinating quote I have to ask you about. Quote, there's a big pile of private capital that wants to own real estate and a big pile of real estate trading at a discount. You said that to the Wall Street Journal in 2018. Has real estate really been trading at that much of a discount for that long pre-pandemic lockdown? Oh, you know, it's an interesting question. What we specialize at Land and Buildings is buying heavily discounted real estate in the private market. Uh, and that exists almost all the time. Uh, not REITs as a group, but there's always a stock or a sector uh, where you could buy it at very substantial discounts to private market values. What's always fascinated me is the private capital uh, that is piling up on the sidelines is putting the money out at the private pricing, uh, which is often, uh, in the relative to the stocks we're buying, materially higher valuation than what we're buying it for in the public markets. And I think some of that private capital in 18 was looking at the valuations on some property types and saying, you know what, we can't put this money out right now because the returns are not attractive enough. And, you know, our argument is, you know, you should be buying the public companies at big discounts rather than going out and, and buying it in the private market where you're paying uh, essentially net asset value or where the assets will trade. So here we are where, I don't know, this is day 93 of, uh, it feels like, of lockdown. You have more than 41 million people who have applied for first-time unemployment benefits. The GDP feels like it's been cut in half. What has this done to the price of both real estate in the private market as well as the public markets? So COVID-19 really turned real estate on its head in certain property types. And 
We've been spending very intense period, March and April, trying to figure out what the landscape's going to look like. The last time I remember this type of an intense impact on real estate was, was after 9-11. And of course, the predictions that occur in the days and weeks after a crisis like this, and some, some are going to pan out and some aren't. Uh, and so it's important to use that period as a lesson for some of the uh, things that might occur in the future. I would say we're not seeing a lot of price discovery in the private markets on real estate because it's too soon. Uh, and it's hard to close real estate. You know, we're talking to the private equity guys and, and getting a deal closed if you need government approvals and notaries with the stay at home orders is quite difficult. But I suspect we're going to start getting price discovery in the next three to six months uh, where the private equity guys are going to be buying real estate. Uh, you know, as, as John Gray said at Blackstone following March, you know, they could buy on the screen, but they couldn't buy in the private markets. Uh, and they bought $11 billion worth of uh, securities on the screen. Uh, so they clearly were opportunistic in, in buying at that time. The big changes that occurred were the work from home worked better than people thought. Uh, and the bosses of the big companies saw that it worked better than people thought. And many of them lived through 9-11. And it was very poor, the work from home for the week or so after. This time, it's really working smoothly. And whether it's Gorman at Morgan Stanley or Fink at BlackRock uh, commenting, particularly as it relates to New York, at how the productivity is quite high and the office use is likely to decline in the future. And so office was already soft in New York. And I think this is going to really accelerate a downturn in office in New York. And it's going to accelerate a downturn in major urban office markets and major urban uh, residential markets, because I think as people discover that they can work from home and maybe go to the office one or two days a week, they're going to move to the burbs. Uh, and as they move to the burbs, they're going to move further out. Uh, and so uh, this dichotomy of urban cores being adversely impacted and suburban markets being positively impacted, I think is with us for the next three to five years. Some of it was already in place because you had uh, the millennials getting to the age where they were starting families and wanted to move to the burbs. And we already saw the population decline in the past three years in Manhattan. Uh, and this is, this is going to accelerate it. Um, I think single family, whether it's for rent or to buy, uh, is going to be a strong place uh, in the real estate market. I think New York City office is going to be very difficult uh, uh, over the next several years. So let me push back against that because you're not the only person making that suggestion. And here's the counter argument. Cities and urban centers have been the dominant source of economic growth and cultural creativity and entertainment and, and go down the list for 500 years. Once we have some form of treatment and some form of vaccine for COVID-19, why wouldn't we just return to that five-century-long trend? I think that the reason why New York works, uh, and New York will always be a major uh, market, is you have a brain trust. People in Manhattan and the tri-state area. So if you want to be an employer, you can come here and you can access that brain trust. I don't think that's going away. And we're not saying New York's going to see a 30% population decline. We've been seeing the population fall about 1% a year for the past three years. We think that it accelerates a couple of percent um, naturally. And if you just look at demographics, and a lot of investing in real estate is just looking at demographics. Where is the pig and the python going to be? Um, and right now, the millennials are that prime age to start families, and they're moving out of urban cores, and they're moving to the burbs. And that's going to happen with or without COVID. It's been accelerated because of COVID. I think New York, like myself, I've been working in Connecticut for 12 years. Uh, and, you know, I make sure I'm in the city one or two days a week. And I set up external meetings. I set up internal meetings uh, with uh, uh, colleagues. And the excitement and the energy in New York will always be there. But I think what's going to happen, uh, there's going to be a hybrid model that's going to develop. And that is, if you had... A thousand people 
worked in an office every day, you'll probably go to 750 people uh, with that other piece being they're in two days, somebody else is in two days, uh, and it, it, that's not going to go to 50% or zero in my mind. But you're going to have that um, hoteling of office space. You have your laptop, you come in, you grab an office, you grab a desk, whatever your pay grade is, uh, and you set up your appointments and you have conference rooms and you have uh, meetings and lunches and other colleagues come in on those days. Uh, I think that's likely how it's going to play out. And I think that's facilitated by technology. The technology didn't exist 10 years ago uh, where that was really feasible. But the technology exists today uh, and people want it. Yeah. In fact, uh, the SEC after 9-11 mandated that every uh, security firm and every asset management firm not only had a backup plan, but had an ability to flick a switch and relocate if they were to have lost their uh, headquarters. So the one of the end results of 9-11 is that the work from home, the work remotely is much more easy to perform these days than pre-9-11 days, not just because of the technology, but because people have thought this through in advance. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we flicked our disaster recovery plan on immediately. And, you know, because we were, one, required to by the SEC have a plan, but we were regularly testing right. it. And you were up and running the next day. We didn't have to buy anything. Everybody was, was a go. Quite fascinating. So, John, you picked quite the uh, auspicious year to launch uh, a real estate investment company. Uh, you, you launched the firm in 2008. Is that, is that correct? That's correct. So you start your career in 87. You launch your business in 08. You, you have to let us know the next time you're going to do something significant so we could all hide under our desks. <laughs> What, what was it like launching the firm right into the teeth of the crisis? So, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, I guess, when you look at it in hindsight. You know, at the time, I got into the real estate business to buy real estate. Uh, and I did it privately, and then I did it publicly. And then um, the Wall Street firms came. I was very aggressive as a buy-side investor uh, when these companies were going public and reviewing the prospectuses um, and challenging the CEOs on why they were structuring the deals a certain way. Uh, and the Wall Street firms that were taking the companies public said, hey, we'd rather have you in the tent pissing out than outside the tent pissing in. Uh, and so I accidentally became an analyst and went to Solomon Brothers. Um, I'll just kind of digress for a second. So Sam Zell was taking his first REIT public and he came to the office and, you know, I was a young guy and I had my legal yellow legal pad and i had like four pages worth of questions and i sat down with sam and sam comes in with his motorcycle helmet and he slaps it down on the conference room table uh, and he introduces himself and i said sam you know look i apologize in advance but i've read this prospectus cover to cover and i have like four uh legal pages worth of questions and some of them are going to be a little tough and a little probing and he looks at me and he goes john i'm shaking in my boots fire away <laughs> it was a, <laughs> Very classic, Sam. And he and I have you know, stayed in touch ever since, and he's been a great uh, mentor to me throughout my career. Um, but um, So I did that, and then I accidentally became a sell-side analyst, uh, and I built a great franchise. We were the number one ranked group for uh, the majority of the time I was there, and we were very uh, focused on making sure we were advocates for the investors in REITs, and not a shill for the investment bank. Uh, and so we pursued... Um, our research quite aggressively, picking stocks uh, and calling out uh, misdeeds on the part of management. Um, and I loved it. I had a blast doing it. And I had a great group of folks uh, that I worked with uh, and a great team. Uh, and I ended up running not just the U.S., but I was the global property strategist at the city group. And uh, it, was, it was great fun. But around 2005, I wanted to get back to the investing side. Uh, but at that time, we also sent bubblegum machines out to our clients, suggesting there was a bubble forming in commercial real estate. Uh, prices were, were flying higher, interest rates were low. And I said, you know, this isn't the time for me to go out and start a firm because I think there's a bubble and it's going to break. Um, I'd rather wait for the bubble to break uh, and then uh, get out and start uh, a business of investing in these stocks. Um, and so uh, we sent the bubble gum machines out. Uh, by uh, June of 2007, it was actually 
this week in 2007, uh, I was at a REIT conference and we met with 50 CEOs. Uh, and at the end of the conference, we were debriefing with uh, my team. And there was a common theme that we found from every company. Uh, demand was slow, supply was high, and financing was difficult. And I was uh, of the opinion, and our view was, it was over. The bubble was breaking, uh, and um, it was, it was, that was our view on the real estate market. But it was also at my, that, that time my view that um, there's going to be an opportunity for me to start the investment firm that I wanted to start back in 05. Uh, and, uh, by, uh, the first quarter of 08, um, you know, I spoke with the folks at City, uh, I told them what I was looking to do, uh, and they were very supportive, uh, and they, uh, gave, they seeded our fund, uh, they allowed, uh, some of my folks to join me, uh, and we launched the business of August of 2008. Um, fortunately, we were quite, uh, bearish, and we were able to make some money in 2008, uh, on, uh, on the market, but it was wild. I remember there was one day when uh, our group of stocks, REITs, traded a 40% range uh, in one day. It was just mind-boggling, and the key was really to have uh, low nets and, uh, and, and tight risk controls uh, during that period. Uh, and I'll never forget that song, the REM song, It's the End of the World as We Know It, kept flying around in email boxes, um, and, uh, of course, we all got through it, and real estate's gone on to be a, a great place to be. I, I remember that song, and I remember Tom Petty's free-falling also being heard in various <laughs> uh, trading rooms. So so you have a reputation as uh, occasionally taking activist positions. How is this different with what we think of as traditional operating companies versus being an activist with REITs? So we like buying cheap real estate in the public markets. Uh, and sometimes those stocks are dislocated because people don't like the fundamentals or they don't like management or something, but they're not fundamentally broken companies. Um, and in those cases where there's something that's broken that can be fixed uh, and you can unlock the value and get back to net asset value, um, you uh, can work with the board, you can work with the management team, you can work with the other shareholders to unlock that value. Uh, we've been involved uh, since 2012 in uh, 29 activist campaigns, uh, and we've seen companies sold, we've seen new management teams, new boards, uh, assets spun out, companies fixed, um, and uh, it's been a terrific way uh, to, uh, to unlock value um, in, uh, in the public markets and, and realize that net asset value. Um, I'll tell you just one story from last year. Uh, and I was thinking about it this morning because uh, there's a big REIT conference going on uh, today and tomorrow. And uh, as it was in 2007, a seminal event uh, for me, in, in my view, where real estate here, uh, there was a major announcement by Blackstone. And Blackstone was acquiring a warehouse uh, portfolio for nearly $20 billion at an all-time high valuation. Now, we had an activist campaign going in a warehouse company. And warehouse is a hot property type. Uh, very strong demand. Uh, rents are going up quickly. Uh, valuations are going up quickly, as we saw with that Blackstone transaction. And we had started an activist campaign about uh, nine months before this conference in June of uh, 2019 uh, in Liberty Property Trust, which is a warehouse company. Uh, and it was trading at a substantial discount to the value of its real estate, whereas the other publicly traded warehouse companies were trading at premiums. And we thought the reason it was trading at a discount was because it had an office component, which people don't like office, uh, investors don't like office, and because the company and the management team had made poor capital allocation decisions. So if people wanted to buy warehouses, they'd buy one of the other companies that wouldn't buy Liberty. And we began a discussion with the board and the management team. Uh, and we said, you know, if you just sold the rest of your office portfolio, we think you could close the gap to NAV. And we also think you should develop a, a succession plan and refresh the board. And I got to say, in our activist, my career as an activist, um, this board was very professional uh, and uh, listened and responded. Uh, they announced six weeks later they were going to exit office and the stock moved nicely. 
Uh, we got somebody on the board maybe six months uh, after we started our campaign. Um, and, but then what happened at this conference a year ago was Blackstone did that transaction. And I ran into the CEO in the hallway uh, and I said, Bill, what'd you think of the Blackstone transaction? And he said, my portfolio is better than that portfolio. If that portfolio is worth that valuation. My valuation is even better. And I said, well, give me a second. Your stock's at 50. And I did the math in my head. I said, so like 62 bucks a share is what you're worth? He goes, yeah. And I was like, okay, so how are you going to get to 62? Uh, and he realized he probably shouldn't have said that to me. Uh, but we had a nice call with the board a few days later and said, look, um, if you have a way to get to 62 without selling the company, don't sell it. But these guys are paying big prices and they got a lot of money to put out. You should call Blackstone. You should call ProLodge. You should call Brookfield and see if they'll buy the company. And again, to their credit, um, they, uh, a little reluctantly, but they did engage with, um, the three big buyers and, uh, Prologis, uh, ended up buying them, uh, for $61 a share, a valuation that this management team was unlikely to ever get the stock to on their own. Um, and so I think the activism is a great way to find these diamonds in the rough, uh, in the real estate market, uh, and work with the boards and management teams. Uh, to unlock the value. And, you know, we, we don't like to see companies going away in sales. We'd much rather see companies fixed. Uh, in this case, it was likely the only way it was going to get there uh, to that kind of valuation. So uh, we think it's a, it's, a, it's a great way to buy cheap real estate in the public markets. Uh, and when we see these pension funds buying in the private market at full value, uh, you know, we think, uh, you know, they should be doing it in the REITs. Quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about a comment you had that I'm somewhat intrigued about in your most recent white paper, COVID-19 has supercharged the American dream of living in a single-family home. Discuss. So, obviously, the American dream, we all know, live in a home. And with COVID-19, it accelerated the movement of the millennials out of apartments into homes, in our view. Uh, and, you know, if you talk to folks that are living in apartments now, they're like cooped up and they're afraid to press the elevator button. They don't want to be on a high floor. All the cultural benefits of being in an apartment uh, in an urban setting uh, had dissipated during COVID-19. And they were thinking of moving anyway. Uh, they were at that age. Uh, and so what we've seen is that the public companies that own homes and rent them out uh, and the companies that build homes saw, much to our surprise, a real pickup in demand uh, the second half of April uh, and throughout May. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the things we love, and I always tell my investment team, we have to know our company's cold. We don't know when we're going to get the opportunity to buy them because they're cheap enough. But when that happens, the market goes against uh, the down or it goes against the company, we want to be ready to move. Uh, and in the midst of the crisis, uh, in March, uh, we saw the home builders and the single family for rent guys get really cheap and we started buying them and we were calling every day, anybody we could call, uh, to find out what was going on with new home sales and what was going on with, uh, the ability of the tenants and the, the homes to pay rent. And, uh, we got comfortable that it was not going to be a total disaster. Uh, but then there was a real surprise that happened in mid April where we started hearing that, uh, the, the rental guys were able to push rents and occupancy. Uh, and the home sales started picking up, and that's only been accelerating. So this trend out of the cities, which has been going on pre-COVID, has accelerated. And an interesting fact, you know, one of the things we didn't talk about when we talked about New York is um, the inability to deduct the state and local taxes is a bad outcome for places like New York. And one of the home builders said they've seen the most, uh, the greatest increase in demand in Texas and Florida, two states with no state tax. And so I think we're going to continue to see both financial incentive to move out of certain states with high taxes to states with low or no taxes and this move into homes. And I don't think that's going away. I think that's, again, demographic. It's generational. Um, it, you know, it'll ebb and flow. But I think the next two to five years, you're going to continue to see that movement to, to single family homes, wanting to be in a good school district, uh, having a backyard for your family. Typically, you have two wage earners 
uh, versus one wage earner in an apartment. Um, so I think those trends are set uh, in motion and are likely to continue. I think the spike we're seeing right now will abate and become a more normal, steady growth. But what we're seeing out of the apartments uh, owners in the urban markets is a real challenge on occupancy and rents. Again, we're at this uh, NARI conference uh, today and tomorrow, and so all the companies are giving us updates in the apartment. Uh, occupancies are down 200 basis points, uh, and rents are down anywhere from 4 to 7% in the apartments. Uh, and so there's a real movement out of apartments and into single-family homes, whether you're renting it or you're owning it. So we've been hearing that housing demand is outstripping supply especially for single-family homes in the suburbs. But we've been hearing that for a long time. When does this reach the point where it really becomes problematic and we begin to see a uh, significant increase in real estate prices? So the single-family home prices bottomed, I'm going to say, the end of 18 uh, and have been accelerating and they're now going up about 4% a year. Um, I don't think that's terribly concerning because it's not like we saw in the housing bubble where they were going up much, much more dramatically. The other advantage that we have in the single family market uh, post COVID is 30 year mortgage rate is probably going to decline. I mean, it's down 60, 70 basis points now, but we're probably going to see that it's going to be down over a percent. Um, and so the individual or the couple that was living in an apartment or uh, somewhere else um, now has the ability to buy a home because it's more affordable because the interest rates are so low. Um, and so um, I think that uh, the demand will continue. Uh, the uh, prices probably won't get out of hand because uh, the builders will build uh, new homes and uh, sellers will put their homes back on the market uh, and the inventory will clear. Uh, and I think it'll be much more rational. But, you know, time will tell. The key thing about being an investor in public real estate is you can't just have a thesis, put it in the bank and forget about it. You have to be in the market every day uh, talking to as many folks as you can to see if those trends that are underpinning your investment thesis are changing. Uh, and when they change, you got to reevaluate. Uh, you know, I talk a lot with my team about the off ramp. You know, it's easy for them to come with their investment thesis and their presentation about why we should buy a stock. Uh, but um, it's much harder to say, when should we get out? Uh, and so when we go into a name, uh, we have clear off ramps. If this doesn't play out the way we expected, uh, whether it's in the first six months or in the third, fourth or fifth year, we're constantly monitoring the off ramps uh, for it not working. So I think the key uh, as we're looking at the housing space, and as, as you suggested, you know, we may have an undersupply and, Prices going up too quickly. We just got to keep our finger on the pulse of it uh, and make sure we're aware of what's going on and then reassess our investment uh, rationale. Let's stay with that question of supply because I'm, I'm intrigued by the concept that nimbyism, the not in my backyard regulations that not only are in cities like New York and San Francisco, but all the surrounding suburbs have really kept density low and have kept lower-income housing out. Are we going to see any change in NIMBY laws, and, and how might that affect housing supply and prices? So most new construction of single-family homes is on the outskirts of town. That's maybe an overstatement because it sounds too remote. But you know, inside the, let's say, highway circle, the first circle, is pretty well developed. So there's not going to be a lot of room for a national home builder to come in and buy uh, 100 acres and, and, and build the homes. So they're going to have to go a little further out. Now, what's interesting is with the work from home, the individuals are willing to go a little further out as well because they don't have to commute every day. Um, so we got to monitor that supply and make sure it doesn't get oversupplied, which, you know, right now we've been underbuilding the single family market for uh, since the financial crisis. And so I don't see that as an immediate challenge. Clearly, you know, when I got in this business 30 years ago, the beautiful thing about New York is high barriers to entry. You can't build, uh, no new supply, uh, and we have all this demand. What's fascinating about New York is we're overbuilding the office market. We've overbuilt the hotel market, and we've also seen overbuilding in the 
for rent and for sale apartment market in New York. And this is in a market which is supposed to have high barriers to entry. So um, what happened in apartments, particularly in New York, is there were tax benefits that were granted to build an apartment building. Those tax benefits were expiring. And so a lot of developers rushed to get as many deals approved as they could, uh, and that resulted in oversupply in Manhattan. I think what's really, to your point, we talked about this a bit earlier, about the cultural and economic and excitement that goes in New York City. Um, one of the challenges to that for many people is the cost of living in New York City. I think the cost of living in New York City is going to be lower uh, in the next several years. I think it's going to be low, cheaper to have an office space. It's going to be cheaper to have a store. It's going to be cheaper to rent an apartment, to buy an apartment. Uh, and some of that will keep some of those uh, millennials in the city. Uh, but it doesn't take a big change, right? It doesn't take 30% of the people moving out of the city to cause a ripple in the market. If we see a 1% decline of population each year for the next three or four years, that's going to be a real challenge, and that'll make it more affordable for folks. I want to stick with the idea of the edge of town or the suburbs. Just yesterday, my wife and I founded ourselves. We, we live about 40 minutes outside of the city, and you go 20 or so minutes east, and suddenly it's what you used to think of as not a commutable distance to the city. But as you suggested, if you're only going in two or three days a week— well, suddenly there are big areas, and I have to assume this is true for Philadelphia and Boston and Seattle and wherever you look, but I have to assume there are large areas that are now potential bedroom communities for job centers and urban locations like that that weren't thought of that way three months ago. Oh, I think it's going to open it up, and I think it was already opening up with the ride-hailing services like Uber. And, you know, like you, you go in your car. I, I do a lot of cycling here in Connecticut with a group of guys. And, you know, we'll go 30 or 40 miles out from where we live in Connecticut. And we've been commenting the past three or four weeks how there's all these cars with New York license plates uh, driving around yeah. in these communities, clearly, you know, looking to escape either renting homes or looking to buy homes. Uh, and, you know, we've been riding here for 20 years, and it was a real noticeable uptick to see all these all these New York plates hanging out in Connecticut. So, uh, and I think, you know, the work from home, you don't need to be five minutes from the train station if you're going to take the train right. in. And, you know, you, you don't mind the, a little longer commute if you're not going in as often. And one of the arguments uh, that I've heard, and we'll see if it'll play out, but as we get to autonomous cars um, or ride hailing, you know, the Ubers of the world becoming more ubiquitous, will the commute be as troubling for folks? Uh, because right now, if you live in the burbs, you go to the city and you use mass transit, you got to take your car to the train, you got to get on the train platform, you got to take the train in, then you got to get on the subway, and then you have to walk to your office. Um, if you start eliminating some of those steps or making that whole process easier uh, with autonomous cars, the view is that that's going to change uh, where people live. Uh, and now with work from home, you know, that's going to clearly accelerate it. An interesting point on this, uh, which, which you didn't bring up, but I think is, is related, is you know, some of the home builders are thinking about what happens when we don't need two car garages uh, because people don't have the second car because they're using autonomous or ride-hailing services. Uh, so how do you redesign the home? What about Amazon deliveries and other deliveries are becoming a bigger part of what happens uh, at the house? Do you need a vestibule built into the home so that the delivery guys can put the things inside but not be able to get into your home? And now with work from home and pandemics, you know, we have four kids, uh, the six of us living in this house, uh, maybe, uh, you know, our thought to downsize an empty nester, uh, was premature. Uh, and maybe you'll see less downsizing. You'll see less of the sort of end of life of the, the homes and the downsizing being postponed or not done at all. So it's going to be really interesting to see how, how this evolves. Uh, but I do think it, it was ushered in by technology and, uh, the, the productivity, uh, that, uh, employers like myself are enjoying. Uh, as people are working from home. One last thing I didn't ask you about that I want to get to, and I know you don't have a crystal ball, but you have to look at the suburban malls and other retail um, REITs as being somewhat problematic. What is going to happen with that space? Is there a retail rena uh, renaissance in the future? Or is that 
waiting to be converted to high-density housing at some point in the future? The, there were 2,000 regional malls in the U.S. 10 years ago. Um, there's going to be a fraction of that in the future. Uh, and how you repurpose those malls that are no longer uh, viable uh, is going to be a real challenge. Uh, and I think uh, it's a challenge for the towns uh, where they're in because they were big taxpayers. Um, and, you know, tearing down a mall is not uh, an inexpensive proposition. Uh, and if its population is moved away from that location, um, you know, it's a challenge as to what you can put there. Uh, I, I don't know that there's a clear, uh, a clear answer. Uh, uh, these things might just sit empty. If you remember, uh, Bloomberg's took over the old Alexander's department store building um, in its current location. That sat empty for 10 years. Uh, before uh, Vornado built uh, what is today the Bloomberg building. And I think it's going to take a long time. But I do think that that fraction of the malls that remain open um, are going to be very successful. Uh, we're going to have a much smaller footprint for many of the retailers. Uh, those malls are going to see high traffic. Uh, people still want to go. You know, I was on the board of Taubin Centers. Uh, and when you go to some of their assets, um, and they have the best mall portfolio in the U.S., uh, you go to some of their assets. Um, you know, I remember one down in Florida, Dolphin Mall. Uh, there was somebody following me around. And I'm like, why, why is this woman following me? And she was following me to get my parking spot. And then she called her husband. So he drove over and she just asked me to wait because there was no parking spots available in the lot. Um, and um, not that exact scenario isn't true at many of their malls, but it is true, right, where they are full and people want to go out. So I don't think they're all going away, but a lot of them are going to be really challenged. You know, you had asked me a question earlier about valuations and how real estate will be valued in the future, and I don't think I, I answered it. Um, I think one of the fascinating things that's going to come out of COVID is the Fed dropped rates from, call it 2% to a half a percent, or Fed didn't, the 10-year Treasury yield went from a, a almost 2% to a half a percent. Um Interest rates going down um, means that financing costs are going down. That means that the valuation of real estate is likely going up. But not all real estate is created equal. I think warehouses, data centers, cell towers, single family for rent are going to see valuations of their real estate go up materially over the next several years, whereas the valuation of the malls, the shopping centers, the hotels, the casinos, the office buildings are going to be more challenged because there's secular headwinds that are impacting those sectors. So they may see valuations hold, they may see them decline, but I don't think they're going to go up as much as they could otherwise, given the, given the interest rate decline. And if I look at, at my career, the, the one big surprise that I wish I knew before uh, was that the tenure was going to be uh, a one-direction train down uh, because if you knew that, you would have just loaded up on real estate 30 years ago uh, and, and rode the train uh, as, uh, as interest rates fell and the valuations of real estate uh, increased. 30 years? I'm going to tell you it's 40 years back when Paul Volcker uh, broke the back of uh, inflation. Quite fascinating stuff. I know I only have you for a limited amount of time, so let me get to my favorite speed round questions and talk to you about... Uh, our five favorite questions we ask all of our guests, starting with, what are you streaming these days? Tell us your favorite Netflix show or podcast or, or whatever. So I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm going to listen to some of yours now. I see you some great speakers. Uh, but when we're in the car and we have the kids, we, we listen to How I Built It. Uh, we listen to some great episodes on Spanx and uh, Tate's Cookies and how those businesses uh, were created. And we uh, love those. Um, what are your favorite Netflix shows? You give us a couple if you like. So, you know, I'm, we don't watch a ton of TV, but there's this new Apple TV. Uh, I think it's called Defending Jacob. Uh, Everybody uh, loves that. Uh, that is it's fascinating. And we wait for each new episode to come out. And we watch it. And uh, so that's been a lot of fun to watch. Um, but uh, we're not watching a ton of TV, oddly enough. Tell us about, you mentioned Sam Zell earlier. Who are some of your mentors who helped shape your career over the years? Sure. So Sam Zell was a big influence, probably 
for me and many others. Uh, and he's always been incredibly gracious with his time uh, that he'll spend, uh, you know, talking with me uh, and, uh, and and speaking at conferences. And he and I have done a lot of fireside chats together. Uh, but uh, and I was just talking to him last week, uh, and uh, he's just got his finger on the pulse. He's very quick. Uh, he gets it, uh, and and he's really been uh, a fantastic uh, mentor to me. Um, the other one is a gentleman by the name of Steve Roth, who runs Vornado. Uh, oh, sure. And I mentioned him brief, briefly before. Uh, and he's the one that really um, focused me on buying cheap real estate in the public markets. And the big when I met him, the big thing he had done recently was buy the Alexander's department store chain. Uh, and he, he didn't buy it because he wanted to be in the department store business. He bought it because he wanted the real estate. So he shut the department store down and then redeveloped all of the real estate that they owned. Obviously, the, the, the killer location was the full city block, uh, which is now the Bloomberg building. Um, and it took him 10 years, but uh, he was able to uh, put in great retail uses on the ground floor, uh, and then Bloomberg's office space in the middle and some condos on the top of that building uh, and, um, you know, took something that was undervalued in the public markets and, and created billions and billions of dollars of net worth. And um, throughout uh, his career and my career alongside him, you know, watching him do that over and over again uh, has been enormously valuable. Uh, and it's frankly, you know, something which we practice in, in particular in the activist work that we do, where we try to find these undervalued real estate in the public markets and and go about unlocking that value quite fascinating um if you're not watching tv tell us about some of your favorite books what are you reading these days and what books do you like to recommend to people who might be interested uh in real estate so one of my favorite books i've read in the past few years is malcolm gladwell's outliers it's an old book i reread it um and i made all my kids read it i made them talk to us about it. And, uh, you know, in that book, he has this concept of 10,000 hours. You know, if you spend 10,000 hours doing something, um, you're going to get good at it. Uh, and, um, you know, the people who really put in, uh, whether it's the time in the pool or the time at work or uh, practicing an instrument, um, if they, you put that kind of time and energy into something, you're going to, you're going to master it. Uh, and he has got a great, um, uh, the, the people that he talks about in there, cookie tasters. Uh, and I didn't know this about cookies, but the, uh, or food tasters. Uh, but when they make an Oreo cookie, um, the cookie, uh, the excess dough, I guess, they use to make the next cookie. And these two women who were food tasters could tell when they ate an Oreo cookie if it was the original, uh, or if it was the excess. Um, and uh, the remade cookie. And, you know, I think about that in my career, and I've been doing real estate a long time, and, and I think about the example I talked about earlier with Liberty, where I didn't have the numbers at my fingertips, uh, but I was able, when I ran into that CEO in the hallway, but I was able to sort of do the math, the rough math in my head and come up with $62 a share in value. And that's just something, and then the company got sold at 61. That's just something that comes with putting the hours in. And I think that's such a valuable lesson. And you know, that's why I had my kids read it, and they're going through school, and I keep reminding them about it. The other book so, would be Sapiens, which is oh, like sure. the history of humanity. Uh, and, uh, you know, I read that book actually twice. Uh, and, um, you know, you, you lose track as we've been here for like a nanosecond in the scheme of uh, human beings being on the earth and the development. And uh, I think it's, you know, a wonderful uh, book. It puts our uh, life into perspective, our lives into perspectives, uh, and really some of the damage that human beings have done to this planet, um, and uh, hopefully uh, being able to get get ourselves out of it. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed that book. Great suggestions, both. S- since you mentioned kids, what sort of advice might you give to a recent college graduate who is interested in a career in real estate investing? Now, it's funny, you know, we just rewatched The Graduate, uh, from 1967 <laughs> with Dustin Hoffman. And so you would you say plastics? That That's your uh, suggestion. Plastics. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I always say to my kids, to the extent they listen to me or people that work for me, it's, it's content. Um, because technological, technological advancements 
have eliminated a lot of jobs. And I just look at my career, you know, the trading floors emptying out, the sales force is emptying out, the people that, you know, did all the stuff to get our research reports ready to go out, and those jobs are gone. But, you know, I'm a content guy. Uh, and if I look around at uh, people who have long careers, uh, if you're content, you're like, you're a content guy, Barry, right? We got content right yep, here. For sure. If you're a content guy, you can have a long career. Uh, and so figure out how to create and develop content, uh, whether it's, you know, picking stocks or writing research or uh, creating new technologies. I think that's the, that's the answer to the future. Quite, quite fascinating. And our final question, what do you know about the world of real estate investing today that you wish you knew 30 plus years ago when you were first getting started? I wish I knew the tenure was going to be at 60 basis points. <laughs> um, that would have made investing a lot easier. Um, all the uh, wall of worry while rates have been coming down um, about rates going back up, uh, you could have just dismissed and bought and financed short and held on for the ride. Quite, quite fascinating. Thank you, John, for being so generous with your time. That was John Litt, founder and chief investment officer of Land and Buildings. If you enjoy this conversation, well, you can check out any of the other 300 such discussions we've had over the past nearly six years. You can find that at all of your favorite podcast locations, iTunes, Spotify, Google, Overcast, Stitcher, wherever finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Hey, check out my weekly column at Bloomberg.com slash opinion. You could follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. And if you would like to see my daily reads, you can find them at Ritholtz.com. Sign up for that email also. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Tim Harrow is my audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer. Mike Batnick is my director of research. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.